The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all and is therefore, I'm sorry, is good and doeth good unto all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son and Holy Ghost. And to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. And that's just a portion. Actually, it's two chapters from our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. And I begin there because it summarizes... Uh, Really, it's a summary of tonight's passage in Leviticus chapter 17. Um, If you'll remember, last week I said that Leviticus is, the first half of Leviticus is found in uh, chapters 1 to 16 and the second half is 17 to 27. But in reality, the first half is 1 to 16 and the second half is 18 to 27 and 17 uh, serves as a transition. It's a transition because of its content. If you remember, the first half focuses on the sacrifices and the priesthood or the sacrificial system in the priesthood. The second half focuses on personal morality and the holiness that the Lord calls us to. The first half is very public. Uh, The second half is more private in nature. The first half, we've been talking over and over about our approach to the Lord. The second half is about how we live having approached Approaching the Lord in first chapter or first half and now living in his presence in the second in the second half. And chapter 17, again, is that transition because it contains a little bit of both, as we'll see as we move forward. Our outline is in the back of your bulletin tonight. There are three points. We're going to look at three things from chapter 17, who we are to worship, how we are to worship and through whom we are to worship. And here's a little spoiler alert. We are to worship God alone. We are to worship God alone as he has prescribed. And we are to worship God alone as he has prescribed through our mediator, who is the Lord Jesus. Okay. We are worshiping God alone through his prescribed means through the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, as we ask every week, would you, by your spirit, allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part. We praise you for the past and even tonight for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus. Help us to understand them. May we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ And therefore more confident in and resting more fully in and trusting more deeply in him, what he has done for us and gifted to us. And I pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, who is our mediator. 
Amen and amen. Now, one of the reasons that we know that this is a new section is because the audience is changing. As we go forward from chapter 17 on, we'll see that the primary audience is shifting from the priesthood to the congregation of Israel. And now Aaron and his sons will be addressed as a part of this audience from time to time as we move forward, but only in so much as that they need to know what it is that they are to teach the people. The primary focus is on the people themselves. And the very first thing, as I mentioned to the children just a moment ago, the very first thing that he tells Moses to, to say to the people is that this thing, this which is to follow, is that is what the Lord or this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. It's a divine edict. It's a divine directive. It isn't simply a plan that Moses came up with. It wasn't something that um, it wasn't something developed by Moses's creative arts team. It wasn't a personal preference. It wasn't this personal uh, point of personal privilege. It was, it was a command of the Lord. It, it wasn't even to be negotiated or debated in any way. It was, it was a command that had the obvious expectation of being followed. It was something that the people were to do. And we, as I mentioned to the children, and the reason it was so important, the reason that he had given the command is because he loved them and that he was trying to protect them. And we see what he was trying to thwart in doing so in verse 7. What was he trying to eliminate? What was he trying to deal with through this command? In verse 7, it says that so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Now that, that's strong language, isn't it? It's very straightforward, but it shouldn't surprise us and it shouldn't surprise us to learn that despite all that the Lord had done to rescue his people from Egypt and all the grace and mercy that he had shown them after the golden calf fiasco, there were still some that continued to chase after and worship other gods. They had continued to do their own thing. They continued, despite the Lord's faithfulness, to be unfaithful. They who were a part of a larger community who was described as God's wife had committed adultery. They had been unfaithful. They had, that word there, they had prostituted themselves. They had sold themselves to someone else. And the bottom line was they were breaking the first commandment. They were doing what the first commandment had forbidden. They had been chasing after other gods other than Yahweh. They were placing their trust in fertility gods and harvest gods and what, whatever God they thought would help them get them out of the latest predicament or might help their crops or whatever the case might be, whatever hardships they might have been experiencing. And the, the worst case scenario was there was an all-out abandonment of the Lord. The best case scenario was that they were... Um, there was an attempt by Jews and some of the sojourners or alien residents to be a little um, syncretistic. In other words, they were, they were looking for the best rituals of several different religions and throwing them all together. It would be like you or me going to a local cafeteria or all-you-can-eat buffet. 
And taking a little of this and a little of that and maybe a whole lot of this and not so much of that. All in an effort to please ourselves. But this syncretism was unacceptable. The Lord said, no, Yahweh alone was to be worshipped. Yahweh alone was to be or was worthy of praise and adoration. Yahweh alone was to be feared. Yahweh alone was to be obeyed. He alone was altogether other, altogether holy. He was altogether good, pure, righteous. And to devote oneself to anything or anyone else or to or to depend upon anything or anyone else other than the one who had continually proven himself to be faithful and who had met their every need. If they had looked to anyone or anything else to provide their satisfaction or to provide for them at all, it was nothing more than idolatry. And the consequences were severe. Now let's ask ourselves, what what does that look like today? How can we evaluate how affected we are by the syncretism of our day? Because it goes on. It goes on on a regular basis. And, it's, and, I, and I know we, could, we were tempted to compare ourselves to Hindus or Unitarians and look pretty good. Right? We're not doing those kinds of things. But yet, we have to ask some pretty straightforward questions. We have to consider the more subtle ways in which we fall prey to the syncretism of the day. And we could come up with a lot more of these. I want to frame these as questions. And we, if we were sitting down over a cup of coffee, we could come up with several more, I'm sure. But these are the few that I just thought of this week. What, how can we guard against the syncretism? How can we gauge whether we fall and pray to those things? Well, here are some questions. Is there a willingness to add to or subtract from the Christ alone nature of the gospel? Is there a willingness to rest in the subjective nature and aspects of our faith rather than the objective nature and aspects of the promises of God that are found in his word? Is there a willingness to soften difficult theological truths? Is there a willingness to adopt cultural definitions and descriptions of biblical or theological terms or ideas? Is there a willingness to replace biblical standards with cultural norms? And is there a willingness to jettison God-prescribed elements of worship to make room for pragmatic elements of entertainment? Again, there could be more, but brothers and sisters, the the same is true for us today as was true for for, uh, Israel in Leviticus. The Lord alone is our creator and redeemer. The Lord alone is altogether other. He's altogether holy, complete, pure, righteous, and good. He alone, as we read from our confession, is sovereign over all. He alone is good. He does good unto all and should be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He and He alone. We we must devote ourselves to ascribe worth. We must devote ourselves to not ascribe worth to anything other or anyone other than Him. 
We must devote ourselves to him who has continually proven himself to be faithful. We must maintain a Christ alone gospel. We must rest in the objective aspects of the promises of God. We must refuse to adopt the cultural definitions and descriptions of biblical and theological truths and ideas. And and brothers and sisters, we're being pressured to do that. We must refuse to jettison God's prescribed elements of worship. Which leads to our second point. How we are to worship. We spent the last nine weeks learning about the sacrificial system that God had prescribed and as a way of approach, as a way of worship that he had provided for his people. And it was through various sacrifices and ultimately through the day of atonement that the people could approach, that an unholy people could approach a holy God because he had provided atonement. And and unfortunately, here in verses three to six and eight and nine that Matt read earlier, we learned that the people were taking animals that were to be used for those sacrifices and they were using them for other sacrifices to other gods and to even demons, both inside and outside of the camp. And then when questioned about, questioned about it, it would have been possible, it, it could have been possible to say something like, well, I just killed that animal to eat. We weren't really sacrificing it. Or they may have answered this way, well, we did make a sacrifice, but it was really, it was really to the Lord. Or it could have been a resident alien that had come with him out of exile. And it may have been an Egyptian. And he might have said something like, well, I'm an Egyptian, so I'm sacrificing to Mendez or Mendes. But to eliminate that possibility altogether, the Lord put two guidelines in place. He put two guides in place for the pe- guidelines in place for the people to make sure they continued to follow the prescribed plan and not to fall to the syncretism we just talked about. First, he said, no sacrificial animal could be killed anywhere but in the tabernacle. It didn't matter if it was simply for meat or if it was for a sacrifice. It all had to be killed at the tabernacle. So if it was for meat... If you remember from our study, they, it became a peace offering. And it became a peace offering because the portion of the meat that they wanted to eat would be, in fact, returned to them. And secondly, all the sacrifices had to be made at the tent of meeting and not in the wilderness. So a sojourner or a resident alien couldn't say something like an Egyptian might say. All of the sacrifices had to be at the temple or the t- tabernacle. All of the sacrifices had to be made unto the Lord. And we're going to see later on in our chapters that there were certain rights for resident aliens, but this was not one of them. They could not do their own thing in regards to worship. There was, there was no freedom of religion for the nation of Israel. And so by doing so, God was both protecting the system that he had put in place by maintaining the unity of worship within the nation. And he was also protecting the people. He loved them. He was protecting them. He had set his love upon them. He had redeemed them. And so he was, he was 
bringing them in and, and to make sure as, as he brought them in and to protect them. Another way of doing that was to deter anything that they might do by setting a very severe consequence, which was cutting, being cut off from the people. If they did what he had not prescribed, the Lord would cut them off. And there are different ways of looking at that. It could have meant that the death penalty um, at the hands of their fellow man would be carried out. It could have been uh, meant being cast out of the nation. But if we look back at Exodus 22, the strong words there in verse 20 says, Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So more than likely, it referred to a premature death at the hands of God. And one commentator pointed out, he said that death in the Old Testament is often referred to as sleeping with one's fathers and being buried with the fathers. So there is also a hint of eternal judgment and being cut off from their people forever. So they would have heard this cutting off and it would have been serious and it, it was meant to deter them. The same commentator also points out that this, the psychological effect that would have been in place. He quoted, as I was reading, he quoted this prominent Jewish lawyer who said the wrath of the omnipotent and omniscient God being directly or directed particularly at yourself of all people and being certain to strike at you with unforeseeable force and intensity any day of the year and any minute of the hour was a load too heavy for a believer to bear. The intent is there. Do not do what you've been doing. Do what I'm telling you to do. It's in your best interest. The point is the Lord had prescribed a way. He had prescribed a way to worship. And he wanted that to be maintained. And he was being gracious with these guidelines. The guidelines were gracious. Keeping them in line. And he imposed that necessary severe consequence to deter them. Now, we've been saying, and we'll say again tonight, that we're not bound by this same prescribed manner of worship. Praise the Lord for that. But we're still, we, as, as those here at Christ Church and as Presbyterians, we, we are bound, we bind ourselves to the regulative principle of worship. We, we have committed ourselves to that regulative principle. What is that regulative principle? It's what I read earlier. The acceptable way of worship is instituted by God himself and is limited by his own revealed will. He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And we're not given an exact blueprint. We're not given a, a form and, and everything in a, in a perfect order or pattern to follow. Although the pattern that we do follow is what we would call a covenant re- renewal ceremony that Aaron follows every week. Had actually put together before we started over a year ago and follows every week as he's planning worship. And we believe that that covenant re- renewal ceremony can be found in the pages of Scripture but it's the elements themselves that are very, very clear. If you go to, I was at Redeemer in Siloam this morning and we followed a different form, but the elements were all there. We're in a, following a different form tonight, but the elements are all here. What are those elements? We're singing and we're praying and we're reading scripture. We're hearing the word teach, taught, read, taught, preached. We're going to, uh, we've confessed our sins. We've heard an assurance of pardon. We're going to respond shortly and we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to profess a common faith. We're going to give. We're going to receive a benediction. All those common 
elements that are prescribed in the word of God. And we do that because it is prescribed here. And needless to say, this puts us in a very different position from other churches. It makes us different. For in the words of Tim Chalice, he says, Most of these elements, the ones that I just listed, have gone missing from many evangelical churches for pragmatic reasons. They do not accomplish something the church leaders wish to accomplish in their services. Instead of searching God's word to determine what elements should or must be present in a worship service, leaders are judging elements by whether or not they work according to their own standard of what works. Yet each of these elements represents a significant loss because each in its own way expresses obedience to God and brings encouragement to his people. The reality is in in following or having these elements a part of our worship service, when when people visit, it, it seems a little odd. And we need to be okay with being a little odd. And and I'll give you an example from this morning. At the end of the service, I had a young lady come down. She was visiting at Redeemer from John Brown University, and she was only there because she had been given an assignment. I have to attend another church from another denomination. And she said, I need you to tell me what just happened. And she meant it in a very positive way. She said, I I haven't been a part of that before. And so I just sat and, and we walked through the liturgy. I said, this is what we did. And she went, oh. I thought there was something. And I encourage her. I said, I encourage you to come back. Don't just come back. Or don't, don't just come to f- fulfill an assignment. Come back. Come back four or five more times. Because as you begin to feel more comfortable with the form, the content will then begin to flow. And she said, I've just never been a part of something like that before. Brothers and sisters, it's okay for us to be odd. We have the opportunity as people come to share the truth of why we worship and how we worship the way we do. We do so in grace and love and and we trust that the Lord has promised to do what he said he's going to do through the simple means of grace. Well, in verses 10 to 16, the focus turns from what is sacrificed to what can be eaten. Um, And whether it's animals used for sacrifices, whether it's animals that are killed while hunting or animals that die of natural causes or animals that are killed by other animals, the, the command is the same and it's the blood shall not be eaten. The blood is not to be eaten and the consequence, again, is very severe. Like the consequence above, if anyone did eat of the blood, they would be cut off. But notice the language is even stronger in this section. He says, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from being among his people. So the question is, why even that stronger language? Why the setting his face against? Why the cutting off in this instance? Well, he says, he answers in those last few verses. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your soul. 
For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. In other words, the blood was not to be eaten. It was to be drained and it was to be disposed of properly or it was to be used in the sacrifices because blood is life. And the loss of blood was a loss of life and produced death. And what was he doing? He wanted them to understand the significance of the sacrifices that he had commanded them to give so that they would remember the atonement that came through the blood and death of a substitutionary animal. Period. He did not want them to forget. He wanted them to always remember. It wasn't just these animals, but he wanted that, that, in, that indelible mark in their minds that atonement had been made through blood. They could approach because of those substitutes, because of those sacrifices. And so those guidelines were in place so that they would always remember how they could approach and why they could approach and why the fellowship had been restored. And I don't think I have to. It's not going to surprise you. Where we're going from here. Right, because we have been here and landed here each week for the last nine weeks. Right. And it never gets old. We are. Not bound by these laws because a better way has been provided for us. We're not bound by them. That better way is actually the way that Leviticus 17 points to. And that the way is actually a he. And that he is the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only a better priest, as we talked about last week, but he, he is a mediator. He, last week we mentioned he didn't have to atone for his own sin before he atoned for ours. But tonight we understand and we see that he is the once for all complete and final sacrifice who laid down his life and shed his blood for our atonement. He laid himself down for us. We've heard over and over. We've probably quoted this for the last eight weeks. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he, Jesus, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It never gets old. It never gets old. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy and said there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that's why we confess worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son and Holy Ghost and to him alone. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, that because of Christ, as I prayed earlier, when we began, we don't come with animal sacrifices before we enter. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we come into this place and we offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And those sacrifices are a sweet aroma to him. Because they're offered in his name and they're offered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It it explains why we do what we do. 
May God continue to bless us as we, in our feeble attempts, but by His grace, seek to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now, by your Spirit,